So the next step in the 16 steps of Anapanasati goes breathing in one trains oneself to experience <clears throat> the mental formations. Breathing out, one trains oneself to experience mental formations. And this word, mental formations, uh, the formations, the word is sankharas, and it's a, it's a kind of multi-meaning word. A literal translation could be constructions, mental constructions. We have all these constructions in our mind, stories, ideas, beliefs, attitudes, bias, all kinds of constructs that we then <clears throat> um, we then kind of don't know their constructs and we think this is the way things are. It could also be translated as mental activities, thinking, ruminating, having discursive thought, it's all this mental activity, wanting, not wanting, having aversion, having doubt, <clears throat> having regrets and remorse. And they're, all kind of, they're all mental activities that go on in the mind. Mental activities, mental constructs, mental formations. And what we're asked to do here is to get to know our own. There's nothing particularly mystical or spiritual or religious that we're being asked to do. We're being asked to get to know ourselves, get to know what goes on in our minds and the activities and the constructs, the thoughts, what goes on. And then the question, is there any value in getting to understand oneself better and see what, how these constructs and activities of the mind, how they operate? There can be a lot of value, especially if we can get underneath them in a sense to understand not maybe the content of them, but the very nature of having mental activity. And to understand kind of to get a kind of wisdom or to have some wise understanding about their role and their place in our lives and the time when it's appropriate to put them down, to put them, to let them rest. There's a time and season for everything the time and season for thinking and having constructs. And most minds don't realize there's a time and season to put them down, to not have them, to rest. And it's possible to understand something very important about oneself by just 
becoming familiar with this world of mental constructs and activities and thoughts that go on. And to give you some um, approach to explaining this, I read the story that I wrote. After lunch one day, the abbess and a visiting philosophy professor went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbot, abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, we don't rely on any philosophy at the monastery. But, heard the professor, everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has a philosophy with which to make sense of their life and their purpose. It is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, As we hiked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we'd become from our hike. We did, we did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying for, from hunger, the need to feed the child is obvious to the parent. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than, being, rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery the monks and nuns are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade of a hot tree. So I read this story because as we become more and more familiar with our mental activities, what goes on in these minds of ours, you don't need a philosophy. You don't even need Buddhism to learn that all kinds of interesting things about what goes on in your thoughts and your mental constructs. Maybe not none of you, but there are occasionally people who meditate who, when they first they realize there's a lot of nonsense in there. <laughs> wow. Some people are surprised when they start meditating to realize, wow, it's a little bit un bizarre, unusual. It's a little bit like, wow. So occasionally that happens to people. Some people, the people who have a better time with it all, I think, sometimes get amused, 
by what goes on in their minds. Wow, here we go again. <laughs> Being taken on a ride again. And some people realize that some of the activities of the mind are not so wise and not, not always needed. Maybe there's important things to think about and plan, but it's being planned and thought about in a very agitated, maybe frantic kind of way. And the way it's being thought about is not productive. And so it's better to calm down and get quiet. And the quieter mind maybe is more creative and can think about it more clearly than just kind of the mind is jumping around doing a lot of things too busy. So we see, look at that. This, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to be, it's not useful for me to be so frantic with my thoughts and agitated. So let me get some breathing space to calm down and then I can think more better. And um, so this idea of, of, uh, of becoming familiar and to know your mental constructs, your activities, your thinking, and get familiar with it, understand what's going on, provides you with understanding that isn't dependent on hearing a teacher or reading a book or understanding philosophy. It's just like becomes kind of obvious. You know, I don't need to keep doing this. And But one of the things we sometimes can notice is that when the mind is swirling in the whirlpool of thoughts, agitated thoughts, we can be so distracted from our distractions, we don't know we're distracted. We're so caught up in our activities of thinking that we don't really recognize how busy we are and how caught up we are. And it can, it can feel quite alienating, quite kind of uncomfortable in some ways to be spinning and running around in thoughts and viewing the past and thinking about the future. It's not really, it's very seldom a settled, relaxed, comfortable place to be. And if we're uncomfortable, the whole system, mind is uncomfortable, one of the approaches people have with being uncomfortable is to search for solutions, to look for some way to get comfortable or safe or free or get relief. But if the only way we know how to do that is to try to think our way into it, then we add to the whirlpool, we add to the swirling or the merry-go-round, we just kind of add more momentum to it, add another thought, try to think more. And then we think we need a solution from how we're feeling, so we'll think some more. It's like me, I had a wheat allergy many years ago, and before I knew I had the allergy, uh, I would start feeling bad, and I worked at a bakery, And, um, and so to comfort myself, I was very fond of baguettes. <laughs> so I'd eat some baguette, that was nice, comforting, and then I'd feel worse. So then I'd go get some more baguette, and I'd feel worse. I'd feel like oh, I need a comfort food. You know, and it just spiraled out of control, right? I, I was really, you know, kind of out of it after a while. 
and I didn't know what I, was, what I was doing. It took a while to understand. So sometimes that way it can be with thoughts too. We don't see what we're doing. And just so uncomfortable, we want comfort, we want something, we're desperate. And we're just adding to the problem by how we're thinking and spinning. So it, it's possible to see that, but it's, it can be hard for people who that's the world they know. And so we have something like meditation, something, something that can give us a new perspective on what goes on in there. And it really helps to have the, to become calmer, more settled. Uh, it helps to have the, the thinking mind slow down, have space. It helps to be able to see there's layers, uh, kind of, of think kinds of thoughts in the mind. There's discursive thinking. That's you know having a you know full-blown conversation with someone. It could even be a full-blown argument with someone back and forth. And um, and it's you know it's very energized and active. And there can be you know we're not having discursive thoughts. We might be having very simple commentary about what's happening. It's calmer. And then there might be calmer thoughts, just a recognition of what's happening. And maybe a little bit wondering, what is this? If I do this, if I do that, what happens? And then there can be even calmer thoughts and just, oh, this is an itch, this is a breath. As we learn to kind of relax and settle down, then we're not blinded by our mental activity so we can't see it for itself. And we start having some space and we start having a sense of an alternative that highlights it. It's kind of like, I don't know if it's like this, but it's like if you have a piece of cloth that's filled with stains, one more stain doesn't, you know, you don't even notice it. But if you can clean and bleach the cloth so it's white, then you really see the stain. So if you can get the mind a little bit cleaner, calmer, settled, boy, we can see things. We can see the effect of the thoughts. We can see what we're doing. We can have a different relationship to it, a different understanding than only being caught up in the content of thoughts, what we're thinking. We can be aware of how we're thinking. We can be aware of the impact the thoughts have on us. We can understand maybe the root of the thinking, what it comes out of, the soil it gets born out of. So there's a lot of things we start seeing if we start becoming tuned into the mental formations. And we might recognize that there are times when the mind is thinking a lot, and that and with times the mind is maybe not thinking. There are quiet places in the mind, there are active, noisy places in the mind. One of the mental activities we have is to identify with things. This is mine, this is me, this is my true self. So we have a great identity around things. And that's a mental activity, it's a construct. And there's all kinds of me, myself, and mine ideas that we take in. Some from our society that tells us who we are, some are from our experience, some are from our all kinds of things. And people will live in this construct and sometimes it might take a lifetime for someone to realize, I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to defend myself, apologize for myself. I don't need to be someone 
for my parents anymore. My parents don't care anymore, or something, you know. And so we kind of, kind of puts certain identities or attachment identities down. We see it as a construct. It's not inherent in who we are. You know. And so this idea of kind of then seeing, well, there's a part where I identify. There's it's a part of me actually. There's no here. There's no identity. There's no just just. I just am. There's M. There's just, you know, there's, there's not a construct. So one of the questions I like is, when your thinking quiets down, and it's not incessant and continuous, and there's little gaps in your thoughts, little gaps of silence, space between your thoughts, who are you when you don't have thoughts to answer the question? I mean, that not that kind of mind-bending? I mean, like, you know, like, what? <laughs> because you are something. But if you can't use thoughts to explain what that is, what are you left with? What does that feel like, what you're left with? Oh, this is who I am. What is it? What is that? If I can't say that I'm a, I don't know, a teacher, a meditator, a dishwasher, a pot washer, a table wiper, a bathroom cleaner. You know, these are really good identities to have on retreat. <laughs> you know, but if you can't do that, because it's, you know, who, who are you? What is that? Mental, these, these world of mental constructs we live in, is there an alternative to them? And is that alternative a good place to be? Is it we, are we better because of it? Here's a wonderful, um, I guess it's maybe called a Zen koan from China. There was a Zen master named Dongshan, somewhat famous, and he was sick. And one of the monks in the monastery said to him, you are sick, teacher. But is there anyone who does not get ill? Is there anyone who's not sick? So it's kind of a Zen thing. So it means like in you. You know, you're sick. But is there something in you that doesn't identify with being sick? That's f something inside of you which is not is free of being sick. Something inside of you which doesn't live in the construct, the ideas of, oh, I'm sick and this is hard or something. Just something which lives independent, that's independent of this idea. But is there anyone who does not get ill? And Dongshan said, there is. The monk said, does the one who is not ill look after you? Does that part of you that doesn't suffer, does that take care of you? Does that part of you which is not caught up in the world, that part of you that doesn't identify as something, that part of you that is not attached, that part, does that take care of the part that's ill, that's attached, that's caught up in things? So, so the monk says, does the one who is not ill look after you? 
Dongshan said, I have the opportunity to look after him. So he turns it around. And the monk said, How is it when you look after him? Dongshan said, I don't see that he has any illness. I don't see that he, how do you take care of the one who's not sick? How do you take care of the one who has no identity? How do you take care of the one who's not caught in concepts and ideas and identities? How do you take care of that per one? And the way you do it is you don't see it, that one, as being ill. You don't see that one as the one who is caught, or you don't see it as the one who is free or is healthy. You keep, you, 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 you protect the one who's free by not adding anything to it, not doing anything with it. To leave it alone. Is it appropriate for you to, is there a place that's okay to go to? You, you know something about mental constructs, thoughts, and you know something about an alternative to them. So, in the seventh step of Anapanasati, breathing in, one experiences the mental formations. Breathing out, one experiences mental formations. And this is a seventh step after all the others because it might not be useful to really kind of tune into the inner world and mental formations too much until we're somewhat settled and calm, maybe concentrated. So the first step, especially the first four, being with the breathing, feeling the body, relaxing the body, um, are ways of settling down, arriving, being here, not being caught up in the world of our thoughts. And if we're not caught in the world, of thoughts, then we're in a better position to see them, to see the constructs, to see the formations that go on. And as we see them, we learn about their nature. We learn about the ones that are agitating, frantic, fear-based, aversion-based, that, you know, are not very calm. And, but what is it, this is where we come back to this awareness issue. Who's the one who's aware of the mental constructs? Is there an awareness of them that's not, is there awareness of thinking, which is not just one other thought? Or maybe, is there awareness of discursive thinking from a quieter form of thinking? Or do we notice our discursive thoughts and then we have a story about that? So, to, so we kind of back down, and quieter, quieter, look at that. There's that busy mind, but we recognize it from a quieter place. Or maybe we just silent awareness, just to see it. Oh, look, there it is, kind of a knowing, 
very soft, soft maybe thought, oh, look at that, doubt, there's doubt. So to be aware and start appreciating the value of quiet awareness, silent awareness, sensing, feeling, seeing, that it is in itself an alternative to the agitation being caught and swirling and identifying and the churning of these constructs and ideas. But that's only possible if we, if we settle down, right? Calm down a little bit and so we settle and come down and we get agitated again, we go back to doing breathing and getting focused again, coming down. At the end of the Buddha's life, he went around and he gave little summaries of what he had to teach, the most essential things of what he had to teach. And in one of these little summaries, he said that um, he encapsulated the core aspect of what, he, what his practice is, what the movement of practice is. And um, uh, it involved um, putting aside the five hindrances, establishing oneself in mindfulness and allowing the seven factors of awakening to arise. And the, the link between these two is the mindfulness, the awareness. So that, that's it. There's nothing particularly religious in that. Just, you know, just... And the, the world of the hindrances I, I think is very much a world of thoughts, of thinking. Maybe not only that, but you know, if we have a desire, usually we have thoughts about an object of what we want. Without thinking about the object, there'd probably be not, not much desire. Aversion also tends to have an object. It belongs to the world of aboutness, about that thing that I don't like. Doubt certainly is filled with thoughts and ideas. The fourth hindrance is uh, regret, remorse, agitation, which also probably has a big part of it, thinking and agitated thoughts, restless thoughts, regretful thoughts that keep us kind of swirling. And then the sloth and torpor, you know, exactly where thoughts are in that, maybe it's a little variable, but uh, I think of a sloth torpor, the third hindrance, as being a kind of a resistance. And so, you know, maybe there's thinking in there. Certainly kind of an active construct of the mind. And the seven, hindrance, seven factors of awake, on the other hand, are not thought-based. We don't think our way into them. They're part of that wellspring in the lake that bubbles up from the inside out. It doesn't require thinking to have awareness, the first factor of awakening. It doesn't require thinking to investigate in the way that the Buddha talks about, which is to just see more clearly. It doesn't take um, thinking so much to have vital effort and energy to be present and, and engaged mindfully with what's going on. It doesn't take a lot of thinking to feel joy up for well-being. It doesn't take much energy to, um, 
you know, or it doesn't take a lot of thinking to become calm, be calm. It doesn't take a lot of thinking to get concentrated. In fact, the more concentrated people get, the, the less thinking there is. And it doesn't take a lot of thinking to have equanimity. It's a deep, sublime feeling of just non-reactive. The mind doesn't get agitated, get pushed around, not for or against experience, no matter what it is. And um, so the um, and so the movement is to go from the living a life of being caught in the five hindrances, which is very much involves agitated mind, constructs which are busy and a lot of energy, to going to activities of mind which don't take a lot of thinking, but are really satisfying to have. And the bridge between them, the very thing that diminishes the hindrances and at the same time allows the seven factors of awakening to arise, is to be mindful, is to be aware. To establish awareness and see clearly what's going on. So this seventh step, experiencing the mental formations, it doesn't require, it doesn't say anything in there about doing anything about them. It just says, experience them. And I kind of like the word experience because it doesn't say know them. If it said know them, some of us would probably get pulled into the world of our thinking. But the wor world, the word experience, you know, I don't know what, what the connotations it has for some of you, but for me the connotations are, it's like a whole body thing, a whole being experiences something. It's more the senses. It's not so much, you know, in words or ideas. It's a different way of being with something. So to experience the mental formations, get to know them, become familiar with them. Recognize the ones that are agitating or tiring or, you know, has a lot of energy in them. Uh, see what they are, see what goes on there. See the impact they have on you. See the way we get pulled into their world and lose touch with direct experience, lose touch with ourselves. See how they pull us into the world of identity and being someone or not being someone in some active way, resisting. <clears throat> See that there are different kinds of mental formations. The seven factors of awakening are kind of like mental formations, mental construct, mental things, events, activities. But they're more sublime, they're more satisfying and pleasant because they belong more to kind of the, <clears throat> the upwelling. They belong more almost like, you know, like they don't take a lot of self-consciousness to do. <clears throat> Generally, the hindrances, one way or the other, probably have a lot of self-consciousness connected to them. So, the, you know, the mental construct of being self-conscious. <clears throat> so part of this <clears throat> experiencing the mental formations is to put a question mark behind them, <clears throat> each one. You know, do I need to believe every thought I have, every belief I have, every construct? <clears throat> Does everything that I think have authority? Do I need to invest myself so much in these thoughts, ideas, and constructs? 
Maybe they're useful some places, but not now. If you're <clears throat> the lunch dishwasher, you know, around the time you finish your lunch, that's a good thought to have. The rest of us are very happy that you th think, oh, I'm the dishwasher, I need to go. <clears throat> Please, you know, take on that identity for a few minutes and wash the dishes. But if you come up here for the for the 145 meditation after lunch, <clears throat> we're happy. The rest of us are very happy, I think, if we thought about it, that you didn't bring being a dishwasher with you into the meditation hall. No need to have that identity. It has no role sitting up here. You know, so you leave it in the dishwashing area. So you can kind of watch and see the formation of identity, ideas, how we hold on to them, how they linger and persist, and how we kind of keep doing them over and over again. And it's best with this kind of this step of the Anapanasati <clears throat> to not see anything as a problem, anything as wrong. That's just another mental construct. That's just more mental proliferation. It's best not to see anything as a problem per se, but just something else to experience, something else to get to know. And if you do that really well, really experience it well, get to know it, your whole system, your psychophysical system, will kind of come to an understanding of what to do. So for example, I've mentioned this before, <clears throat> um, I've happily gone along and thought about things while on retreat. I, I'll pick up a particular theme. The longest theme that I can remember having was three days. I just couldn't put it down. It was in the middle of a three-month retreat, so I had a fair amount of concentration. And I think what happened was the concentration decided that that was the object of the concentration. Like, <laughs> you know, what one-pointed concentration finally, finally occurred. And it decided that, you know, I couldn't get it off this thoughts, this, this whole plan I had, this idea. And um, three days, that was quite something. And, um, but what helped was, I, was that the first day I was kind of mesmerized, what a great idea, I was so happy. It made me feel good, you know, oh, this is great, and delusions of grandeur, and, you know, I was gonna get wealthy and save, save the world or something. And, um, and the second day, I'm like, what? And the third day, I was, the, the system was tired of it. Like, give me a break. But it wasn't like, you know, I thought myself into, you know, what, you know, this is a drag or I'm getting tired of this. It just was obvious after a while. I didn't have to value, say, this is a problem, per se. Over time, I saw this is a drag. I could see that it was wearing me down. So what I'm trying to convey is this idea that here what it says is just experience mental formations, get to know it. A lot of wisdom, a lot of the growth and development on this path comes from really taking time to feel and sense and understand the impact and how it is when things are happening. Not to analyze it or not to engineer it, not to kind of go into, probe into its, you know, its psychological roots 
but to really experience what this is like as a living phenomenon, a living ex experience of activity of the mind and construct. What is this? And then, when you've done that and got to know it, and you've learned how to not make it, not make it a problem and just see it and experience it, then we come to the eighth step of Anapanasati. And it says, one trains oneself, of breathing in, one trains oneself to relax the mental formations. Breathing out, one trains oneself to relax the mental formations. <coughs> Finally, <laughs> some of you are getting worried. Just experience it, that's all. You don't want to be in a hurry to, you know, to fix things and improve things. You want to get to know it. Take your time. But when the time is right, it seems appropriate, you can relax some of the mental formations. And as some of you know, one of the expressions I like for this is you can relax the thinking muscle. Because one of the things we learn when we really experience the mental activities, as opposed to just recognize it cognitively, the whole, the whole, the whole, the whole experience of mental activities, like a lot of thoughts, includes more than just the thoughts, more than just the ideas, the stories. It can include pressure and contraction and tightness. It can uh, include a sense, a feeling of compulsion, or grabbing or wanting. It could uh, come along with a feeling of heaviness come along with all kinds of, you know, physical manifestations. And if there's a lot of thinking, the more the thinking there is, the more likely you can find some place in your body that's somehow being, being affected by that thinking. Some of the bigger places, kind of more coarser places, might be, um, you know, around the eyes, the forehead, the jaw sometimes the shoulders, sometimes the belly or the solar plexus area. So all these different, or it could be like the inside the skull. There might be some pressure or tension, swirling that's going on in there. It's in different places it might be. And as, when I started getting much more sensitive to my physical body, I started to become aware of, uh, I think more smaller muscles, like micro muscles. And it was amazing to me the, the line between my thoughts and these micro-muscles. And a little, the little muscles started twitching and tightening up with what I was thinking or my attitude that I had. And I understood maybe why the Buddha referred to the human being sometimes as a puppet. Because that's kind of how I felt. I felt there was a puppeteer up there and there were these strings going down to my, my muscles. And I would think, you know, cake for lunch, <laughs> and there'd be a little kind of pulling on my elbow. And I'd think, you know, soup, and there'd be like lifting and expectation, or a little movement in my forearm, or my fingers would tighten up a little bit, or 
just very, you know, it's like, choo, 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 choo. It's like, who's in charge here? That's just, my body's just like a, you know, puppet. You know. Anyway, to to start feeling this micro effect. So, so, so um, we start becoming familiar with something more than just the thoughts, and we start identifying perhaps that. It, Relaxing the mental formations is not just letting go of thoughts, but it's also can involve a physical relaxation, softening parts of our body that seem related to our thinking, if that's accessible. It can also be done sometimes, if we're lucky, by simply changing gears from, you know, a high gear to a low gear in our mind. Because as I said earlier, there's different levels of thinking. And if you recognize, oh, that's, I'm pretty, I'm spinning out here. I'm just like telling stories. Let me kind of change gears here. And rather than telling stories, I still am going to think, but let me just kind of just stay with mental noting. We're just recognizing, oh, this is what's happening. Here's a person who's telling a lot of stories. Here's a person reviewing the past. And have that, that those thoughts of recognition you can maybe maybe kind of try to try to say it in your mind as a whisper, as a quiet place in the mind. So the mind is agitated, and then very quietly, you say, oh, there's an agitated mind. So you're switching gears, and sometimes switching gears can help the system relax, the constructs relax. And sometimes you can relax the mental formations by just letting go. Sometimes it's possible to say, I had enough of that, or release those concerns, those activities. It's easier to relax the mental formations when the rest of the system has some relaxation, some calm and subtleness. And that's why this is, I think, why it's, this is like the eighth step in the 16 steps of Anapanasati, to relax the mental formations. Because you've already, you know, relaxed the body in the first tetrad. And then this experience of well-being that comes with step five and six is very helpful because to have a sense of well-being, to have a feeling of some kind of modicum of, for the mind or heart to feel a bit safer, to feel more content, to feel a sense of ease, to feel a sense of goodness here, makes it feel more appropriate or more easier or safer or more welcoming to not be caught up in the constructs of the mind, the thoughts of the mind, plannings we have to do, or the rememberings, and the stories, and the, all these things. It's because we have a reference point of goodness, a reference point of subtleness, a reference point of feeling embodied and present. So it's easier to kind of, as we let go of our thoughts, we have a place to land, let go into the relaxed body, let go into the body breathing let go into maybe a little bit of sense of calm or relaxation that's here. Let go into that bodied feeling of well-being that might be there. 
And if there's nothing like that as a reference point, if there's no well-being, no relaxation, if it just we're just so caught up and agitated and lost in thought, it might not be realistic to try to calm, calm it down just directly or to let go. We might need to do another approach. We might need to just, start, just go back to our breathing, just breathe for a while. And then just breathing might, in itself, might calm things down. So, <clears throat> so this seventh step, breathing in, experiencing mental formations, uses the most simple aspect of mindfulness, of awareness, to recognize what's going on, to feel, be aware, to experience. The second step, this eighth step, relaxing the mental formations, is part of, is not mindfulness, but it's part of what's called mindfulness training, or awareness training. Because as we relax the mental formations, what replaces it, or what stands out and as it fills the empty space that's been left, is greater awareness. And we establish stronger awareness, more awareness, greater awareness, wider awareness, more spacious awareness, more peaceful awareness, something. So part of the function of relaxing the mental formations is to support this process of developing stronger awareness or greater presence of awareness. Because awareness is really kind of the central thing that we're trying to do here is establish this strong, firm, all surrounding awareness. So relaxing the mental formations doesn't leave us with anything, but we can let go and relax into the receptive awareness, a greater open body awareness, here. And the greater the awareness, the stronger we establish the awareness, the more all the steps come alive or become relevant or even if you start over again at the beginning, you begin with a stronger awareness. You kind of go do it in a deeper way, deeper way. <clears throat> 